0: Well, good morning. Uh, Quick quiz. Who's ever woken up with this overwhelming urge to open up their Bible and start reading the book of Nehemiah? (laughs) Not really? It's not one of those books that we're that familiar with, not really one of those go-to books that we would naturally lean towards. But if you do take the time to read through it, you would realise that it covers a very significant period in Israel's history. And it's filled with incredible highs and lows, with portrayals of amazing faith, perseverance, and of course, of how God's hand is in control of all the events that take place. But to get to this period, it's helpful to see what's been going on with the Israelites leading up to this time. So strap yourself in because we're going to be hopping in our Bible time machines to visit some different times and some different places. So what's Nehemiah about anyway? Well, it's about a wall. The wall around Jerusalem. Now, throughout history, walls have been very popular. Um, As you can see, Donald Trump's building a wall. And China built a pretty decent wall too. (laughs) Talk about perseverance, this wall was 21,000 kilometres long and it took two and a half thousand years to build. And we've got our own walls, don't we? Why does anyone build a wall? Well, basically it's to keep the people and property inside safe and to keep those who wish to harm you or sense the threat out. Alright, let's go back in time, way back to the time of King David. The Israelites are settled in the Promised Land, and after years of war and conflict, there is peace in the land. Soon, his son, King Solomon, becomes king, and things start really well for him. He is blessed by God with incredible wisdom, and then he builds the amazing temple dedicated to God in Jerusalem, and the walls around the city are constructed. But then things start to go downhill. Unfortunately for someone so smart Solomon makes some really bad decisions. He he begins to accumulate wives and concubines 700 of them in fact and many of these are not Jews but from the surrounding nations the same nations that the Israelites have been at war with for centuries the same nations that worship idols and false gods and sure enough Solomon soon gets sucked into these same unholy practices. Let's jump forward to the next king, Rehoboam. Now he listens to some really bad advice. And before he knows it, the nation of Israel is split in two. Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Now there's two kings. Jeroboam is in the north in Israel and Rehoboam is still the king in Judah. And so begins A very sad and ugly downward spiral where the Jews, God's chosen people, reject the God of their ancestors and take up the despicable practices of the nations around them. And over the next 350 years, the northern kingdom of Israel, well they have 19 different kings and each one of them is worse than the next. And the same goes for the 20 kings that rule in Judah with only a few exceptions. Now, obviously, God's not just going to let his people self-destruct like this without doing something. So he sends prophets to both kingdoms, giving them specific instructions to warn these kings of what will face them if they continue to reject him. Well, don't we all love to be corrected? Even worse, how do we feel when someone exposes the sin that's happening in our lives? We face a choice, don't we? We can admit that we are acting in a way. We can admit that we're acting in a way that is against God, asking for forgiveness and asking Him to help so we can change. Or we can let our sinful nature and our pride kick in and be antagonistic towards the messenger. And unfortunately, this was the option that the kings chose. Rather than listen to the prophets and repenting, they had them beaten or run out of town or even killed, and things went from bad to worse. Now, during this time, both kingdoms were regularly under military attack from foreign nations, and because of their rebellion, God had removed his hand from protecting the Israelite armies. So the northern kingdom of Israel, they were the first to crumble. They were being overrun by the Assyrians. And then in 587 BC, Judah was defeated by the Babylonians as they finally broke broke through the walls of Jerusalem. The walls built to protect God's holy city. Many Jews were slaughtered. The walls, the temple and the city were destroyed. All that was left of Jerusalem was ash and rubble. Those not killed were taken captive to Babylon, except for the poorest peasants. How totally demoralising for the Jews. The promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham 1,500 years before, had been taken away from them. Once again, just like in Egypt, they were homeless and in slavery. Pretty depressing, right? But all is not lost. Because God provided hope for the Jews through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 29 verse 10, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. 70 years. Well, that's not so bad. After all, they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. But 70 years is still a long time. In fact, it's a lifetime. And by the end of those 70 years, most of those who were taken from Jerusalem were dead. They had raised families in Babylon who had never been to Jerusalem and who had now established lives in Babylon, running businesses, becoming accustomed to a different way of life and a different way of thinking. Yet God was still working in this place. He raised a new empire, the Persians, to come and overthrow the Babylonians. And he placed a Persian king, King Cyrus, to rule in Babylon. Now these Persians were certainly no followers of the Lord. They had their own false gods and their own idols. But look how God works in the heart of Cyrus to fulfil his promise. This is how the book of Ezra begins. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfil the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah... The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. So Cyrus is saying to all the Jews who are captives and in exile, away from the land that God had promised them, you can go back to your homeland now and rebuild the temple of your God. You're free. And to top it off, Cyrus went and gathered up all the treasures that had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar from the temple in Jerusalem and gives it back to the Israelites. Here, take these with you too. What an amazing offer. It sounds too good to be true. Who would pass on such an amazing gift? Well, 50,000 Jews do take up the offer and return to Jerusalem. 50,000? That's a lot of people. Except for the fact that there were now somewhere between 2 and 3 million Jews living in exile. So if you do the maths, that's only about 2% of the Jews who chose to return. Everyone else chose to remain in exile, away from the land God had chosen for them. Why wouldn't more return? Well, they were comfortable in their new surroundings, prosperous in their business dealings, potentially even affluent. Why risk that when Jerusalem was still a pile of rubble and still surrounded by enemies of the Jews. Perhaps they were thinking, we'll face nothing but problems, opposition and hard times if we return to Jerusalem. We'll have a much cruisier lifestyle if we just stayed where we are. Well, they were right. There was a great deal of opposition to the rebuilding of the temple, and the building was delayed many times. Eventually the temple was completed in Jerusalem, But it was only a shadow of its former glory compared to Solomon's temple. And it had taken 23 years to rebuild. So let's jump forward. Another 70 years. Yes, another lifetime. There's some good news and some bad news concerning the Jews now living in Jerusalem. The good news is that during those years, Ezra the priest has led the people to turn their hearts back to God. And to return to worshipping and following him. The bad news was that the wall was still in ruins. And there were enemies all around. What is God doing? Why is he taking so long? Well, God is doing something. God is always doing something. We just don't realise it all the time. Back in Babylon, King Cyrus is long gone And his grandson, King Artaxerxes, is now in power. Our story is set in the city of Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. Now, if Susa sounds familiar to you, it's because that's where the book of Esther is set. And it's only around 30 years previously this happens. And Artaxerxes' dad was King Xerxes. And he was the guy who had the kingdom-wide beauty contest to find a new queen. And he chose Esther. Anyway, by this time, it was nearly a hundred years since the first Jews had, to ret- had returned to Jerusalem. King Artaxerxes has a man who serves him in the royal palace and his name is Nehemiah. And Nehemiah becomes the right person in the right place at the right time. Let's see how the story unfolds. At the very beginning of Nehemiah, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah had most likely never been to Jerusalem, as he was born in exile, but he's interested to find out how things are going. He's likely to already be aware that the the temple's already been rebuilt and that the people have returned to their worship of God. So, he probably is hoping for more positive news from the visitors. But no such luck. Verse 3 tells us, They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Nehemiah is shocked. The situation is worse than he could ever imagine. So how does Nehemiah react? Well, in verse four we find that he's so overcome with grief that he needs to sit down and he begins to weep. Now Nehemiah just doesn't have a little cry for a few minutes and then feels better after that. He's actually emotionally distraught, and he's like this for days. And over these days, verse 4 tells us that he is mourning. It's as if if he's lost a loved one. And he's fasting. When was the last time you felt so burdened by something on your heart that you went without food for days so that you could put all your focus onto crying out to God? The state of the people in Jerusalem is such a burning issue for Nehemiah. He can think of nothing else. And then we hear the prayer on his heart. Now notice that Nehemiah just doesn't jump in and think of an action plan. He brings it to God. How often when we're faced with an issue in our lives, do we come up with a strategy and then try to achieve this through our own strength? Often it doesn't work out that way, out the way we'd hoped. And that's when we ask God for help. But Nehemiah realises that this is way too big for him to solve by himself. The first thing he does is to bring his burden to his loving Heavenly Father. He prays first, acts second, not the other way around. And the the way he prays is a great example to us of how to come before God. Verse 5 begins with, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Now how often do we start our prayers with, God, I need this, or I want that. But Nehemiah begins with a statement of praise. After all, when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he didn't start with, give us this day our daily bread. He starts the prayer with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And hallowed means revered and honoured. Our prayers should begin with telling God how awesome he is, just like Nehemiah does. Then, in verse 6 and 7, he asks if God would hear his prayer and then confesses that he and his people are sinners, that they have not followed God's commands, his decrees and laws, and that they are, in fact, wicked. He doesn't ask for stuff yet. First, he confesses that he is totally unworthy, that he is totally dependent on the grace and mercy of God, just like us. Nehemiah then reminds God of the promises that he has made to his people. That's right, he still hasn't asked for anything yet. Verse 8 and 9 says, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah is recalling God's promise to Moses way back in Deuteronomy 30. And that promise relates perfectly to the situation the Jews find themselves in at that exact time. Yes, They had been unfaithful. Yes, they had been scattered because of their unfaithfulness. But God, you promised that if we return to obeying your command and trusting you, that you would take us out of here and return us to the land that you promised to us. And Nehemiah knows that God keeps his promises. And this is also a wonderful encouragement to us that no matter what our present circumstances may be, God is faithful and he keeps his promises to each and every one of us. Then in the final verse of his prayer, Nehemiah actually asks for something. He asks that God will give him success by granting him favour in the presence of this man. Which man? Well, at the very end of the chapter, the author slips in that Nehemiah just Happened to be the cupbearer to the king. Well, why didn't he tell us this from the very beginning? Because as a cupbearer, Nehemiah would have had daily access to King Artaxerxes and he would have been highly trusted. He's obviously going to use his position to gain success, right? But the author rightly doesn't make it about Nehemiah or his position. He makes the focus of the chapter on Nehemiah's prayer on how awesome God is, on how he keeps his promises and on how dependent on him we are. God's plan will be fulfilled. He chooses how we can be part of that. Now Nehemiah had a big decision to make. As the cupbearer to the king, he had a pretty cushy job. He would have eaten the best food, been provided with the finest clothes, and lived in really comfortable quarters in the royal palace. Okay, so the downside was that he had to taste the king's wine, and if it was poison, things could have turned ugly. But apart from that, his was a lifestyle of comfort and prestige. But when he heard about the plight of those living in Jerusalem, he could have taken the same path as the vast majority of the Jews who remained in exile. Well, things are pretty good for me here. Yeah, I know Jerusalem is the place that God had planned for me to live and it's a real shame what's going on there. But I'm settled here now and I'm living a comfortable and prosperous life. So I think I'll just stay put. But no, God had placed a burden on his heart that outweighed any perceived comfortable lifestyle. And that burden is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, the walls that are crumbled still after all these years. He's choosing God's plan over his personal comfort zone. There's nothing comfortable about following Jesus. We live in a fallen and broken world. And as Matt reminds us, as Christians, we're not on an ocean cruise. We're on a rescue ship. Now, as Christians, we can praise God that we've been scooped out of the water and saved. But there are those that we know who are still in the water, desperately in need of saving. God's put you in a position to reach out and grab the arm of someone who may have no idea that they're actually drowning. To play your part in fulfilling God's plan. To play your part in extending his kingdom. The walls walls around Jerusalem were in disarray. The people living there had no physical barrier to protect them from their enemies surrounding them. So does Nehemiah succeed with his request to the king? Well, you'll have to come next week to find that out. But even at this time of despair for those living in Jerusalem, God was there with them. He was speaking to them. The prophet Zechariah, He lived during the time where the first Jews were returning to Jerusalem, at the time where they were attempting to rebuild the temple, facing much opposition because of the crumbled walls. But Zechariah writes a prophecy from God about a time where those physical walls won't even be needed anymore. In Zechariah 2, verses 4-5, to he writes, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. And I will be its glory within. With the coming of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. We don't need those physical walls that were so important in Old Testament times. His spirit is in us and his presence is all around us. Friends, I try to take the time to pray for my family each day. And part of my prayer is to ask God to wrap his loving arms around each of us. And when I do that, I get a little picture in my head of what that looks like. And it's a great comfort to me because it tells me three things. Number one, it's a sign of his protection. Number two, a giant hug is a great sign of his love for us. And three, it's a sign that he is with us in every moment And every situation. And that's way better than any wall I can build. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Nehemiah and his example of praying. Lord, while we know we can ask anything of you, help us also to remember to always lift up your name in praise, to confess our sinfulness to you, and to remember how dependent we are on your grace and mercy. Thank you that you are a God who loves us and keeps his promises to us. And Lord, help us to always be open to where you are leading us and guiding us. Help us also not to fear stepping out of our comfort zone, for we know that your loving arms are around us each and every day. And we pray this in the name of our loving Saviour Jesus. Amen.